Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Portfolio managers of Fidelity Climate Leadership Bond Fund, Chris Atkinson and Sajiv Vaid, join today's podcast. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has caused an energy crisis. As a result, countries around the world have significantly changed the way they're approaching energy. The European Union has made plans to increase its solar and wind power. Amidst this whirlwind of transition, how important is it for advisors to look at investing in renewable plays, and why should they consider a fixed-income approach? Today, Chris and Sajiv share how they seek to identify leaders in global decarbonization to include in Fidelity Climate Leadership Bond Fund, which includes utilizing Fidelity research analysts from across the globe. They note how this changing macro backdrop is the most challenging in decades, and also share thoughts on the expansion of EV charging stations, opportunities in South Korea, supply chains, and real estate, among other topics in today's 30-minute discussion. This podcast was recorded on September 1st, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. I wonder if we talk a little bit about the fixed income market just to begin with, because we are in the middle of a rate hiking scenario in our lifetimes. Probably we won't see anything quite like this across the pond as well. Chris, I might put this to you first and ask Saj to follow up with just your thoughts on what kind of moment this is for fixed income investors, sort of period, and then we'll break it down. Chris. Uh, excellent question. Obviously, it's been an extremely challenging year for for fixed income investors and uh, investors in, in risk assets more more broadly. Clearly, the rate volatility has produced negative returns uh, that, as you rightly say, we are uh, we certainly haven't seen uh, in our investing lifetime. I think the the last month was uh, one of the worst on on record for uh, sterling and, and, and European asset classes. And really, that puts us in a, in a situation where it, it's difficult to, 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 to like fixed income, it's difficult to like risk assets. Yeah. However, you know, what I would say is that, um, you know, the, the, the resulting rise in yields and the yields that we're seeing today in investment grade credit are, you know, higher than we've had uh, in the past, you know, 10, 15 years. And therefore, I think for, for investors who are you know, looking to you know, sort of average into a uh, a higher yielding environment, you know, I think now is you know potentially an interesting moment. Yeah, this is this is what we're hearing from a lot of different professionals in the industry. It's a fascinating moment. Saj, anything you know, just to add to that, to sort of set the table, and then we'll we'll go into the discussion of decarbonization. Yeah, I think you know, Chris hit on the main points here, and I think you know, just even from my perspective. Myself and Chris have been doing this for some time. I think it's fair to say the macro backdrop has been or is one of the most challenging in decades. And just to put it into some sort of perspective, I mean, I just saw some stats today. You know, global central banks year to date 
have increased net rates by 170 basis points wow. overall. 170. Now, if you were to believe current pricing in the market of the central banks, the four central banks, major ones, there's another 480 to go before, by year end. Now, that as a, a sort of backdrop may shy a lot away from fixed income, especially with the inflation backdrop that we've got. But as, as Chris said earlier, I think if we are nearer to the end. I'm not saying there's not going to be more volatility because that has absolutely followed us over the last uh, 12 months. But the key thing here is that yield. You know, global credit markets at four and a half percent. The last time you got that type of yield, you have to go back to 2009. And if so from a macro perspective, you know, it is going to be tricky for the next three to six months as we, you know, in effect, have this tug of war between inflation and growth where, you know, central banks, in, in, the, in the words of this year, pivot, have pivoted very much towards focusing on inflation. And rightly so with inflation at, you know, multi-decade highs. And it's fair to say, you know, it's, there's some criticism to be labelled at central banks it's they were too late to the party recognizing this as yeah, not just sure. a bank, but a lot of investors. But I do think we have approached a point where they are now really addressing this issue. Now, the problem is, uh, and which actually provides, I think, the more positive backdrop of fixed income 12 months from now is if we do undergo that what's all if we do have half of the pricing that's in in terms of rates, we are sure going to have a very deep recession in certain parts of the globe, Europe, UK, and our own macro team say there's a 70% chance of a hard landing in the US. Interesting. So, I mean, this is this is sort of where bonds ultimately, if inflation is down, can create that kind of ballast in that kind of environment. And we'll, we'll sort of fold that through our conversation. Chris, I want to come to you and, and I'll come back to you, Saj, as well for this. But the discussion of actually where the decarbonization conversation, a lot of this is at policy levels, has changed over the course of, I mean, I, we could probably start the date at the, at the Ukraine invasion, the invasion of Ukraine. But, you know, over the last year or so, how quickly has this discussion picked up pace? It has a real sort of highs and lows, but there there is change, is there not, in sort of the world's paying attention to this? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think, yeah, obviously when we had, you know, COP26 last year, there was a, there was a catalyst for, you know, for a rise in interest and in focus on, on climate issues. But I think it's fair to say that, you know, those, those words weren't necessarily being followed up with actions. But of course, what we've seen this year with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the focus that that's brought on dependency of Europe in particular, obviously, uh, on you know Russian fossil fuels, that's really you know sharpened the pencil of, of policymakers, uh, and we have seen some very significant progressions over the course of the year. Obviously, the EU was already, I would say, sort of front runner in terms of the uh, of the greening of, of its energy system, but clearly they've had to really accelerate those plans quite rapidly in order to alleviate the the shortage of gas and the shortage of power that they're experiencing currently. Uh, but I think more encouragingly, given that, that Europe was already, you know, had sort of got the joke, if you like, I think more encouraging from, from my perspective is 
that you know some of those other uh, regions and countries that maybe have been a little bit slow to pick up uh, uh, on climate policy have also started to uh, to really run with it quite hard. So China uh, has been making some good progress. We had uh, recently a climate act passed in in the uh, lower house in Australia. Uh, that's a huge development because Australia has historically been a bit uh, reluctant to engage with the energy transition. And of course, as you mentioned earlier on, the, the Inflation Reduction Act in uh, uh, in the US, which um, for me at least is uh, probably one of the, the, the worst named pieces of policy. It's essentially a uh, an industrial policy, a good old-fashioned industrial policy that focuses on on, on climate in particular. Uh, but that really, you know, sort of sends a very positive signal that decarbonisation has now moved right up the agenda, and of course, with it, um, energy security. Daj, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I think actually just on that, I think what is interesting over the last day, actually since the beginning of the year, is there's been a constant which is at the company level where they are upping their sustainability bar. And what you're seeing as a result of the Ukraine crisis is governments accelerating that through regulation, as, as, as Chris said. And I think what will be interesting over the next 12 to 18 months is how this incentivization leads to actually proper capex coming through from, from corporate. And, you know, and, and that's what the bonds are for, right? These are companies that are needing to get themselves aligned in all different sectors in different ways. And ultimately, this is the underwriting that goes along with it. So, so Chris, I'll bring it back to you. What does this fund seek to do? It is a corporate strategy. It's looking to companies who are involved in the fixed income markets, essentially for CapEx. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. So, you know, the sort of genesis, if you like, of, of, the, of this fund, you know, when we started to, to talk about this as a, as a really interesting project, because what, what we felt was a lot of the sort of climate-focused uh, funds in the fixed income market, not that there were that many, but that there were a few around, you know, sacrificed some of those sort of key, key characteristics of a, of a fixed income fund, namely that, you know, they, they have an attractive yield and they have defensive characteristics with all of the sort of diversification across sectors, across regions, across issuers that you would you would want to see in a, in a fixed income fund and, of course, has a positive climate impact. Now, you know, so what we're trying to do is we're going to take this global universe of issuers of credit. So, you know, something like, you know, 13,000 bonds, 2,000 issuers, and, and we identify which of those companies, you know, are most aggressive in decarbonisation or have the most to win, to gain from pursuing a transition strategy. But on top of that, so we're not just looking to identify the winners, the leaders, and those who are, are, are transitioning, but also those who can facilitate other companies and other uh, and, and countries as well in their decarbonisation agenda. So, so we're looking for like a positive tailwind, if you like. And of course, all of those things brought together actually results in you know, a lower credit risk for these for these issuers going forward. So, you know, for us, it, it just makes a lot of sense to to factor in decarbonisation to your to your fixed income investing. It just it is just at the end of the day, it's just managing another set of risks. Saj, as as Chris just pointed out, there so companies that have to capex in terms of actual building or infrastructure, whatever they need to do, but also companies that are that are helping others with the transformation. Can you just sketch out for us a, a little bit more of the types of companies that maybe just you don't need necessarily to give us names or anything, but yeah. just to kind of dig into the types, maybe sectors of how you're looking at companies? 
And I think one of the things, just picking up again from what Chris said, what this fund is not about is exclusion or, you know, taking the easy route out by the hard to abate sectors. Okay. Let's not have it in the portfolio and appear that we, you know, we have the great, uh, the, the good carbon credentials. What we are aiming to do, and we passionately feel about this, is if we are to uh, achieve net zero, and get Paris aligned, we will have to bring these sectors along. So, you know, we identify that as, you know, the, the built-in environment, you know, think about real estate, industrials, mining companies, transportation, obviously we think about EV cars, but it's not just about cars, it's thinking about shipping and, and supply chain. So what we attempt to do through our analysis is look at all these subsectors and identify, as Chris said, not only the, 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 the leaders, but the transition um, helping with them. And I think what's key and why we, we, we're you know, very excited about this fund is the engagement part of it. You, we can only do or you can really do realistically if you have the resources. You know, at Fidelity, we have 184 fixed income and, and, and equity analysts, you know, helping along this engagement, engaging these companies and these subsectors, and not just on a regional basis, but a global basis. And we are to address this thing. It's going to be a global problem. Okay, that's exactly. I was just typing away, ask global next. Okay, so Chris, over to you. This, the scope of the fund is in fact global. Just uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, what's of interest at the moment in terms of the regional story? Obviously, some governments are further ahead and some perhaps look good because they have farther to go. I don't know. Tell us about the global story. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, I think probably you know, where I start off there is is really with that Inflation Reduction Act that we, that we talked about earlier. So that, for me, I think is going to create all sorts of opportunities within the US. I'm not going to go over the details, and I'm sure you're all very familiar with, with the details of that policy. But one of the things that we think it, it will do is make you know, certain subsectors more interesting. So, for example, as you're probably aware, there's, there's various uh, tax incentives on, um, on electric vehicles. Now, the problem with you know, EV production in the US at the moment is that 70% of them don't, don't qualify because of, their, of the, um, the local content uh, restrictions uh, on, on, on that policy. And one area that we've been looking at is actually uh, a number of the South Korean companies that we, that we follow have been establishing local US battery production and have been developing that over time. And they've been raising debt, uh, actually labeled uh, green debt, in order to finance the construction of those um, uh, of those battery facilities in the US. And so we can actually lend money directly to those issuers. They will definitely benefit from uh, from the IRA because uh, they will be classified as, as, as local production. So things like that, you can, you know, this is what Sarge was saying about having that extensive network of analysts. You dig down into the detail. It's not necessarily you know, the sort of you know, the, the first derivative of the policy is the second derivative. It's the suppliers into, right. that, into that business that make it more interesting. So that's fascinating. Saj, another piece of the Inflation Reduction Act, which, again, is a terrible name, um, I agree, is, <laughs> is the idea of, you know, where are we going to plug all the cars in, right? We're still grappling with that. I was in London not so long ago, and, and you do actually have them on the streets. Like every second streetlight is a plug-in, which mm. I thought was quite brilliant. We don't have that here at all. We're speaking about Canada, but the U.S. as well. But the idea, I think, within that act is that it would open up sort of 
areas that are already either federally or I guess state controlled, like inter highways where you could have things. You don't have to buy the land, for instance, to do some of these things. It's opening up networks that are already there right next to the pipeline that's already doing something. They'll run whatever type of electric line right next to it. Speak a bit to, I mean, that to me strikes as sort of a, a second derivative as well. Is that is that moving something for you, Saj, at this point in terms of investment opportunities? Yeah, yeah. I think, Pamela, maybe... Uh, Coming back to an investment that we're, we 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 have in the fund, and it's you know a German service station where you know what we're doing, encouraging in terms of capital, is putting more EV battery stations in there, and you know this and you know, funny enough, you you talked about UK. Um, I mean, I was this summer been away in Mallorca, and I was just fascinated to see the lack of EV stations there so it is a global problem again it, it, um, and i think again coming back to what chris said the incentivization by governments is what's going to encourage that and also the, 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 the to get that sort of unit cost down you know talking about this german service station that we've invested in the fund that is one of the key criteria that we have engaged with them that we want to see you know um, progress made in order to, for us to be satisfied that they are part of that solution that we're, we're, we're looking for in companies. Chris, maybe I can put this to you, we'll just stick with the EVs just a tiny bit longer here. What will the service station of the future look like if we all, you know, one, maybe have to line up along the highway, along our road trip to, to plug in and, you know, will there be some games for the kids as they hang out for the 40 minute charge? Or, I mean, I've actually heard some podcasts saying that they'll become sort of like a half little tiny little Disneyland or something, but you know, something to do while you're charging. Is that is that real? Like, I mean, are we going to be thinking about travel in a different way? We have to stop for the charge. Yeah, I think that is. Uh, I think that's a really uh, it's a really good question, and I think you're right. When when we speak to the you know to the issuers that are sort of slightly more forward thinking in that respect, that that's exactly where they're going. And Sarge, you know, made that point about the German service station uh, operator. You know, that's that's the route that they're taking. Now, obviously, I think that the first you know hopeful uh, iteration is that those charging times come down. So you know, you won't be standing there for 40 minutes waiting for you know 80% charge. It will be it will be something significantly lower than that. But you know, I think over time, I think you're absolutely right. You know, reduce charging times. There will be additional facilities that will allow you to to keep the kids quiet while you're um, you know, getting yourself a cup of coffee or whatever. And, and that's the sort of uh, opportunity that really presents itself for many of these uh, for many of these service station operators. What we've seen in Europe, and I, and I, I don't know if it's uh, started to you know, sort of spill into the um, into North America, is that actually a lot of the utilities are starting to encroach on some of those service stations because that's how they can they can you know, generate additional additional margin is from having a, a joint venture with perhaps traditional fuel station operators and, and, and offering you know much more extensive charging network. I wonder if if we can go back to the global element a little bit and and actually in the introduction we're just talking about companies having to completely rethink their energy their strategy for energy. A lot of countries within the EM universe have simply unattainable energy bills. And there may be a greater urgency just because there's a sustainability of, of energy situations that, that, that won't, they won't be able to sustain them for long. Do you see opportunities in some EM markets where, in fact, they have to accelerate the decarbonization move even perhaps even faster out of necessity? 
So, I mean, I think the uh, yeah the, the question is absolutely correct. So, obviously, decarbonisation of, of developed markets is only part of the of the problem. We have uh, there are you know, some extremely large markets in here in China, obviously being two of the most obvious ones that spring to mind. That you know whose uh, populations rightfully would like to move up the uh, up the income curve and, and obviously up the consumption curve. With that, that of course is energy intensive. And of course, if we have you know, 1.3 billion Indians or, or Chinese um, consuming more energy, and that is uh, derived from fossil fuels, that's going to have a massive impact on uh, on carbon emissions. So, so what we need to do is to provide you know, a low cost, renewable generation to these to these emerging markets. And, and as Saj says, we've been looking at some opportunities in particular in India, where there's a, there's a combination very attractive yields uh, relative to uh, European assets, for example. They are either state-owned or state-backed revenues. There is a huge amount of policy support to to drive the growth of those assets. And that's something that we we find really interesting. It's also a market which has been historically, never say never, but historically has been relatively investor-friendly as well. So it's an area that we feel you know, quite comfortable uh, in, in deploying, you know, uh, a modest amount of capital in the fund to, to those sorts of opportunities. Some will argue that this is sort of broadly across markets, across credit and equity markets globally, not not specifically zeroing in on, on anything to do with decarbonization, but things are like a recession, much more priced in, in Europe, for instance. Do you find actually quite attractive, I mean, you mentioned India, but I'm wondering also in, in Europe, Saj, if if there are more attractive looking opportunities, because perhaps the recession has been priced in further. I think if we take a step back, I mean, just generally, going back to your uh, the comments we made from a macro perspective, where we are in terms of bond spreads, you know, we are at wides of five, five year wides. But actually, when you break that down, Pamela, is actually the cheaper market at the moment is actually Europe and UK. You know, they've only been wider this this at this level 20% of the time. So, you know, what we we are definitely we see value uh, creation. I think one of the things that is maybe a, a, a perception that the, the, the sort of sustainability area of the market has taken a backwater to this. It hasn't. It's still very much front and centre of where capital is still going. What is really interesting is that that sort of extra premium you were you were paying for buying those assets is no is no longer happening. So they, they are part of the normal market. So you're not paying up to have these assets. And I think that is what's creating That's our opportunities. And we and, and we've actually you know been very conscious of just because it has a labelled bond doesn't, you know, you, why should you pay up for that? Because you're you're subject to the same amount of default risk, same volatility in the balance sheet. That sort of ability to step back and look at it has actually served us well. So, you know, now we can look at some of these labelled bonds and, and, and treat them out like we wouldn't any normal bond. And I think that's where the op- opportunities are coming. That's so fascinating. Sach, I'll, I'll come back to you in a second because I want to get... Just sort of on the positioning, if you can go through that for us in a second. But, Chris, one thing I wanted to put to you and ask you for a little bit of an explainer. I need a cheat sheet on this. When we hear hydrogen, when we hear fusion is the future, when we hear nuclear is involved within that story, I wonder if you can break that down for us. Does nuclear 
absolutely need to be involved in the story of fusion, the hydrogen story, or or can it not be? There's there's a lot of different stories rolling around right now. Yeah, it's a it's, it's a pretty thorny subject actually, because obviously you know, nuclear is is you know somewhat controversial pretty much globally. Now, if it's sort of with a sort of cheat sheet, if you like, the way to think about nuclear, obviously we have existing fission uh, reactors. They are, relatively speaking, a tried and tested technology. Obviously, they have some concerns about uh, waste at the back end that, that need to be uh, dealt with. I think where the nuclear industry is is moving towards is more towards these what they call small modular reactors, which are supposed to be easier to build, quicker to build, uh, basically almost like a, a factory process so that you could have a capital goods company that would produce these SMRs uh, almost on a, on a conveyor belt. Almost think of them as like cubes that you can put on the back of the truck and roll them exactly. somewhere else. Is that is that actually what they're like? Exactly, because the problem with fission reactors over time is that they have just, you know, they start off and they say, yeah, we'll have this thing built in, in 10 years and it turns into 20 or even, even longer. We've experienced a number of those delays in the UK and, and, and across Europe. So that, that sort of delivery, that time to market, if you like, has always been too long. That's why it's a it's a problem for low carbon. It's a problem for addressing climate change because the, the timescales that we're talking about are just not compatible, which is where their SMRs would, would come into uh, effect. But, you know, we just haven't had that technology tested yet. Fusion is another matter altogether. Obviously, that is the holy grail of nuclear power. We, we are not at a stage where fusion has been commercialized or is even close to being commercialized, as far as I am aware. Now, of course, if we, if we get there, then, then, then that will be a game changer. With regard to hydrogen, there are again different different. There are many different colors. It's like a rainbow. There are many different colors of hydrogen. So we have we have just a conventional hydrogen, which is produced often from from hydrocarbons. Uh, you have grey hydrogen, where basically the carbon is sort of stripped out of that that production process. You have green hydrogen, which is produced from electrolysis, and that is usually uh, a that the, the power that feeds that is, is renewable power. That's why it's called green. So the idea being there that you basically have a zero carbon fuel uh, that can replace things like gas in, in, in certain situations. And then we have another one, which is called pink hydrogen. And that is hydrogen that is derived from, from nuclear generation. So there are all sorts of different shades of hydrogen. The one that is getting the most attention is, is green hydrogen for, for very obvious reasons. Part of the advantage of green hydrogen is uh, as as we all know, the sun doesn't always shine when you need the power and wind doesn't always blow when you need the power. So you need a way of taking that energy and storing it. And batteries is one solution, but hydrogen is another. Uh, and the, basically the idea would be you have this, you, know, you have an excess of power because the sun is shining far too strongly uh, and you, you just convert it into, into green hydrogen. Then you can stick it on the back of a lorry, stick it in a pipe and you can move it to where it's needed. So actually, uh, green hydrogen is, is a really exciting technology. It's something that we have invested in, in, in the fund. There are a couple of very large industrial gases players that are quite well advanced in, in their development of green hydrogen. That's where we see really exciting opportunities. That's the sort of thing that we were talking about earlier. They, they, you know, they decarbonize their own operations. They're, they're really focused on sustainability, but also you know, they're providing new technologies, new opportunities for other businesses to decarbonize. And so they have a revenue tailwind there as well. And that's the sort of sweet spot, if you like, from a, you know, from a credit investor investing sustainably. Tell us a little bit about, uh, Saj, the positioning at this stage. So there's a time and a place for everything. What, what does this moment in terms of positioning 
represent in terms of opportunities and, and kind of how are you set up right now? Definitely, we have a more defensive uh, mindset at the moment, very much focusing on higher quality uh, assets. From a duration perspective, which always sort of is is focusing given the backup in yields, we have been shorter duration. So this rise in yields, we've somewhat mitigated that. However, having said all of that, we, we you know myself and Chris do feel there's a point in time where we will be, I reckon, over the next 12 months going longer duration because we believe there's a peak in yields. But the, 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 the focus for us very much now going forward is about stock selection and focusing on, on what I think will start to happen as a result of the energy crisis and the growth scare that we have is greater dispersion in markets, which is a, you know, a great time for active managers such as ourselves with the, you know, the, the depth of resources we have from, an, from analysis to, 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 to take advantage of those opportunities. So, you know, bottom line is cautious, higher quality. But one of the things, again, just as a reminder, you know, this is a high quality investment grade fund with really good sustainable characteristics. It, you know, fixed income for many hasn't quite done the job for providing the ballast. But I think over the next 12 months, one thing I am fa fairly confident is you're going to get positive returns from here on from fixed income, given what's happening in yields and given what's happening with spreads. But from us as managers, what's focusing is that bottom up stock selection to ensure that we you know, mitigate to any sort of issues going forward. That's fantastic. You know, it's such a pleasure to speak with both of you and to, you know, sort of have the conversation evolve with you guiding us through that. We look forward to, to speaking to you again. Thank you, Chris and Saj. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts, and don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.